If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn back into 2 Samuel. We're going to conclude chapter 21 today. 2 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 15. And this is the very word of God. And his people should hear it and receive it as such. 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 15. There was a war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Yar Oregem of, excuse me, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning eager to hear your voice. Father, as we gather in this room, we come to sing praises of your worth and worthiness. Father, we echo the angelic host who says, worthy, worthy, worthy. Lord, you are indeed worthy. Worthy of our praise, worthy of our trust. Every word you promise comes to pass exactly as you promise. May we lean into your promises and gaze beautifully at the fulfillments we see. God, be with us this morning. Speak, give us ears that we might hear, and hearts to receive and live as you command. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, and all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. I was a freshman in college, And I was at the University of Richmond. I'd been there just a couple of days without my parents. You know that moment when you go to college and they drop you and your stuff in your room and you set it up to varying degrees. I definitely had friends in my hallway who would drop a suitcase and just dig out of it for months. Obviously, there's a contrast to that on the other side where every poster is hung plumb and neat and every Thing is organized and every drawer filled and packed and perfect. Well, 
during the course of those first few days, I was meeting new people and learning where people were from. And in that engagement, I literally turned the corner in the dining hall and saw a table of basketball players. University of Richmond is not the best basketball school in the history of the world, but we do make a lot of tournament upsets. So if you see the University of Richmond in your tournament bracket, don't bet against them in the first round. It's just good wisdom for you. But I turned the corner, and there was a 6'9 giant standing in front of me. He couldn't have been 26 inches wide. I mean, he was the definition of a pencil. It just, whoo, straight up. But as I got closer and walked past him, I found myself kind of with every step feeling like I was looking taller and taller and taller into the sky. The reason I tell you this is that there are times where you meet people who first characteristics about them tend to lay an imprint on you from which you're always kind of seeing them through that lens. And it's true sort of in superficial ways like height or weight, but it can also be true in emotional ways or in a setting. I knew that guy in the days that I did X and so activity. And you sort of always think of them in that place, who you went to elementary school. You might be friends for years and years and years and years, but there's this tiny little piece of you that always remembers them through that lens. Oh, I met you in this stage of life, or we did these activities together. But I've never, ever met somebody as tall as Eric Poole. His girlfriend at the time was the flyer on the cheerleading team. If she was four, six, I'll eat my shoe. She was as tiny as he was giant. And so every time I think about those college days, I think about what a disparity that is between her athletic excellence, and she was one of the most brilliant flyers the cheerleading squad could ever have. And Eric was a great power forward or center, depending on coach and timing. But it was my first contact with someone I would clearly put in the category of giant. He wasn't thick or strong early in his career, but through the course of college, you guys know nutrition and practice and weight room time, he did get thicker. He was no longer a pencil. He looked more like a giant eraser. <laughs> Erasing the other team's hopes and... Thank you. I'll take groans. <laughs> we remember giants, especially when we encounter them face to face. Not only do I think about Eric Poole, but what would it be like to meet Shaquille O'Neal? Seven foot one. His father nicknamed him Big Man when he was in elementary school. Think about that. Your dad calls you big man your whole life. And the one I wish I had met, Andre the Giant. I know that Jeremy talks about WrestleMania from time to time, and Andre Giant is, of course, the giantest giant ever to WrestleMania. 
seven foot four. And he was broader than any seven foot four man should ever have been. These giants are memorable, they are noteworthy, but they are a speck of grain compared to the ocean of God's giantness. If we really want to talk about the humongous, we have to talk about the one who is not bound by flesh. The one who's not bound by one location in one season. When we come to passages that deal with the giants in the Old Testament, we quickly think of Goliath, yes? We quickly think about David as a boy, Goliath as a man. But we must remember that these last few chapters in 2 Samuel are designed to give us a glimpse into the functioning realities of God's kingdom in David's rule. Don't get lost in the size of the giants. Get lost in the humongous reality of God at work unfolding his plan of redemption. How are we to regard God's kingdom as it exists in the time of David's rule? One of the ways we do that is to capture memories. You could consider the end of this chapter the early days of Sports Center. Grabbing a clip from here and putting it alongside another clip and another clip and another clip. The author here is narrating a showcase of military glories. And it's easy to get enthralled by them. Consider the one that opens here in verse 15. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. Uh, this was a constant reality, right? How many times are the Israelites fighting their neighbors? Often, as man is prone to do, to fight for territory and fame, power and money. So there's once again war, skirmishing, battles between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down with his servants to fight against the Philistines. And we've seen this for a long time, right? Israel gets in trouble. David comes in. He brings his warrior men. And God blesses, gives them favor and victory. And the enemies are dispatched or run away. One of the fascinating points is that this passage is not grounded in any specific time. This is just a postcard in the shoebox of memory being pulled out and remembered. We don't really know when this takes place other than it is well after 1 Samuel 17. So here we have David and his fellows fighting for Israel. And David, as one is prone to do in battle, gets weary. He's tired from the fight. He's tired from fighting to the death against other trained soldiers and warriors. So in David's exhaustion, his weariness, 
One of the enemies of Israel recognizes David's exhaustion. And he happens to be a man named Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants. Notice the narrator is helping us to remember a legacy that we might understand how close a call this will be. David will narrowly escape death. He will do so not of his own accord or ability, but because he will be delivered. He will be rescued by a servant, a fellow soldier on the battlefield. But we are to see the size and strength and equipment that this warrior has as he comes to snuff out David's light. Ishbi Benob is a physical descendant of the giants of the earlier testimony. And remember, or be aware, that these giants were said to be largely west of Israel's day, right? The Philistines are kind of a coastal world, and some of these guys might be sort of mercenaries, but it's probably more likely that they're in the legacy and heritage of the Philistines. But there was a time in pre-conquest days where they were located in a different place. These giants invoke fear by their existence, let alone in observing their size. I cannot imagine what the rest of the NBA felt like when Shaq entered and the big man started to assert his will in their arena. But even if you're big, if that guy's bigger, you're aware, right? If, if the rock walks through our doors, everyone here would be like, whoa, that guy is huge. Yes. How much more so if his purpose was to kill you today? And he had the best equipment the best guns or military power at his side. And it was faster, bigger, stronger, just as he was. Sometimes we disassociate ourselves from moments like this when we read them in Scripture. David is exhausted, and the giant eyes him for battle, seeking to dispatch him forever. So the narrator captures the descendancy and size. He's of the clan of the giants. And he describes his weaponry. He has a spear that weighs 300 shekels made of bronze. Now, I know you guys are perfect at understanding how to translate shekels into your everyday life. So it's like seven pounds. This is like seven pounds of bronze. How strong do you have? I mean, this guy, he's not curling this to grow biceps. He's just carrying around like the tip of a spear. Seven pound tip of the spear. And he was armed with new equipment. You see in your Bibles that translation of the word sword. We don't really know that it was a sword. It was weaponry. But this is the only occurrence of that Hebrew word in the whole scriptures. So we kind of translate it sword because it's our best guess. We don't really know. But again, does it really matter if this is a sword or an additional spear or a dagger? 
I imagine our swords would look like daggers in his hands. But he's there for one purpose and one purpose only. At the end of verse 16, we're told he's there to kill David. And what happens if he manages to kill David? What happens to Israel? What happens to God's promises? What happens to David's lineage and dynasty? We must remember as we go through all of the pages of Scripture that there are times where everything is hinged on one moment. Everything is hinged in one man, in one legacy, in one moment. Over and over and over, there are close calls after close calls after close calls, and we can become emotionally numb in knowing the outcome already. You're not sitting in this room if you don't know the outcome. But they didn't know the outcome yet. It hadn't happened in time and space. So David is at risk. And the battle has wearied him. And then David gets delivered. Verse 17, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid, attacked the Philistine, and killed him. Exhale. David's not dead. The promises are still true. Everything is happening as it should. Do you feel relief when you read this? A formidably equipped giant seeks to end the reign of Israel in those lands. And we just go on to the next sentence, don't we? What's the next nugget to learn What's the next date to remember? What's the next event to remember? Feel the weight of deliverance. Feel the fear and the trembling and then the joyous response. David is not dead. The giant is. But David's men have a different reaction. David's men respond to this incident by declaring and creating on oath a policy for Israel's military future. I think this is fascinating. It speaks just a tiny bit to David's leadership and and trust he has in his men and the trust that the men have in him. Their response to the giant's death is never again. Never again. On their oath, they swear David is no longer welcome on the battlefield. Wait, who's king? In this moment, in this way, in this sense, they are. Because they understand something that we fundamentally forget because of our familiarity. Because of our familiarity with these stories or the giant outcomes that we can stitch together, we forget how formidable the opponents were. We forget how fantastical the deliverances have to be. And we forget 
how close they are to darkness and confusion. That's their metaphor. Hear it in their own words. Their response to David is, you shall no longer go out with us to battle. Why? Well, we get their justification. Why can't David come to battle anymore? He's a great warrior. Is he old and rusty and he needs to retire and go on Sports Center and talk about it? Is that their response? No, listen. Listen to the why in their oath. Lest you quench the lamp of Israel. If David dies on the battlefield, what darkness and confusion would Israel be thrust into if the light of David is snuffed out? Darkness and confusion. And we love being in darkness, don't we? We love confusion. We welcome it at every turn. No. Uncertainty scares us. Fear in the midst of uncertainty is probably a part of every bad decision you've ever made on some level. We flounder in darkness. We require light in order to see and we require sight in order to experience comfortably even difficult moments. What is at stake? David, for all practical purposes in this moment, can be understood as the light by which Israel sees their future. The light by which Israel sees God's faithfulness. Now let's be clear. Is David God? No, but he is God's man. He's the king that God chose for Israel, and it's his dynastic line that leads to the coming of the long-promised Messiah. David, in one sense, can be understood as representing the light, the true light, that has come into the world. How often do the gospel writers, especially the Apostle John, think about Jesus as light in the metaphors of explaining who he is and where he comes from. That typology is founded earlier in the Old Testament. When John says he's the light of the world, the true light, he is using a long developed in the structure of the Old Testament, a long developed metaphor. If David dies, the light goes out. And they don't want to live in darkness. David, you are no longer welcome on the battlefield. One of the other things that we should take away is that Yahweh always preserves his people. Do we credit David with every victory? Do we credit Moses as the sole deliverer? Do we see Noah in all of his ability and wisdom and power? Is Noah the great? Is Moses the great? Is David the great? No, they are the servant. 
that God has chosen and blessed for his own purposes. But the principle remains. God always preserves his people. And he does so preserving them through deliverance after deliverance after deliverance. But we must understand how close Israel is always coming to disaster and destruction. But those circumstances are never greater than God. If you want to do a size comparison, it's not about David as a boy and his size compared to Goliath as a giant and his size. Don't compare David to Goliath. Compare Goliath to God and understand where the power really lies. And as we see this, we want to herald David's name. And that's good. But not more than we herald the one that David heralds. Yahweh, the covenant maker and keeper. It is right and proper for us to honor the servants of God. Yes, it is right to remember the stories of how God used them in their day that we might draw strength and assurance that he is using us in our day. Maybe not with the same stakes or the same miracles, but it is the same God unfolding the same plan. And you are a part of that plan. So you should have your name preserved among your family and friends among those who are grateful to God for you, for your prayers, for your discipleship, for proclaiming the gospel. All of you are in this room because someone first shared the gospel with you. Someone first told you the good news of Jesus Christ. It is proper to honor the servants of Christ. We see in this place Verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, and verse 21, we see named and family heritage preserved forever. This son of this guy, so we can place him, it's like an editorial footnote, right? Which one are we talking about? We're talking about Shimei, David's brother. That's who we're talking about. Okay, who are we talking about? Even the enemies have their names preserved in this passage. This is the moment where lots of pastors might pause and point out and make stand up. I won't. But to honor those who work hard in their church that we would understand and remember, yes? The challenge is everybody in our church works hard, yes? Everybody in our church wears multiple hats and does many things. We're grateful for those who have been serving here 15 years, coming up on 16 years. And we're grateful for those of you who have just come and are starting to serve in particular places. I, uh, I will take this opportunity to thank Kim Newingham. I'm thanking all of you, but I'm going to point out Kim is doing the social media stuff for us. And if you've been on Facebook, if you've seen on Instagram, she's putting together 
pictures and quotes, not from me, but guys like Bob Inc., who I quote, she's been making beautiful testimonies. And so I want to highlight that work, not rise it above all the other works, but to point out that even new folks can come and brave new ways of serving because it's not just about by grace. If you ask the elders, we don't really care about the name of by grace. We care about the name of Jesus, that his name would be hallowed. So we do ask that you would like and share and discuss and comment because that's how those algorithms interact to send out a digital footprint. In many ways, the digital world is the door that people are knocking on. We want to be in that arena. So thank you for your hard work. Would you give her a round of applause, please? It is proper to honor the servants of Christ. It is also important to remember that they serve at the pleasure of God, according to the purposes of God. It also means that when we see these threats, we need to properly relate to them in their framework. One of the questions that this passage causes me to ask is, are these four giant men the last of this lineage? Are there no more giants in the land? What we see happening actually begins all the way back in Genesis 15. In verses 18 through 21, God speaks to Abraham. He's uh, Abram at the time, but God speaks to him and he says this. God says, to your offspring, I give, or sometimes translated have given, this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim. Is that an ite? Is that an ite? Did I say ite? Where's the ending here? Well, it goes on, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gigashites, and the Jebusites. Why, why is there no ite here? If you go all the way back to Genesis 15 and God talking to Abraham, I believe he's talking here about a people from whom, or maybe even a person from whom these giants come. The Raphaim. Let's meet him. There's a particular descendant of Raphaim here in our midst. We see this in verse 19. There was again war with the Philistines at Job. Elahanan, the son of Yare, the Bethlehemite, he struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. It's like a giant. You wouldn't hold this thing. It would take five of us, right? One guy can't really move a couch, but a few guys can put that thing wherever we want, right? It's a weaver's beam. It's enormous. And there was again war at Gath. And there was a man of great stature 
who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was what? From who? Yeah, he's Raphaim. He's a giant. This guy has an extra digit on each hand and on each foot. How big do you have to be to have extra fingers and extra toes in proper proportion? This happens sometimes. You'll remember from the great uh, Princess Bride, that, that action historical movie, <laughs> that there was a six-fingered man, yes? And that was noteworthy, because there aren't a lot of them. In the movie, there, there, there's one. Well, this guy's got 24 digits. If he was going to be on Sports Center, he would definitely be wearing Kobe's jersey number. Right, 24? I don't think that the author here is ridiculing the giant. I think he's identifying him and causing everyone to understand the size and scale. But sometimes I read moments like this and I just refer to him as 24. So here's 24 and he's one of the last or maybe is the last of these giants. And then we're told in early in verse 21 that he taunted Israel. Is it ever wise to taunt Israel? This word means deride, defy, reproach, or mock. I think mock is probably the one we would best understand. In other words, 24 was a great trash talker. Not quite Larry Bird's level, perhaps, but this guy's a great trash talker. And when we see someone mocking Israel in David's day, who are we thinking of? Goliath coming out morning and evening to mock the Israelites, to defy Yahweh. We will see that in a moment he will speak no ill of Israel. And God. Because dead men don't talk trash. They become it. Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, strikes him down. These four men were descended from the giants in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Those who talk trash to Yahweh and his people will end up silenced. We might initially remember him because of his hands and because of his feet. But his undoing comes from his tongue. He mocks God. And he loses his head as a result. The enemies of God are defeated Dead Raphaim never lie, and they never mock God again. This is a long promise. How many centuries were Abraham's people in Egypt? Four centuries. This promise is way early. 
and comes to bear centuries later in Genesis 15. The Raphaim that were feared and labeled in Genesis 15 are slaughtered before we get to 2 Samuel 22. In other words, I think we can understand Isaiah 54, 17. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Who gets the last word? Who gets the last word? Let's try that one more time. Who gets the last word? God does. God does. For his glory, for his namesake, we begin to understand the immensity of these tiny clips and the story that they're telling. One of the things that we always ask is what's the theological witness of this text? What do we, even in these short clips of military reporting, highlights from David's day, notice David is not the hero in any of these stories. The light shines at David and through David to the men who are with him. But what's the testimony of this text? It's that we should be assured that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And sometimes his promises have multiple fulfillments. There are times where we want to look at the Bible and say, okay, God promised that this would happen. And we go over here and we see that it happened. So promise, fulfillment, case closed. I want to suggest to you this morning that you should adapt to a different paradigm. And that is that there's promise and fulfillment and fulfillment and fulfillment. One promise can have multiple fulfillments. You'll see this all the time in what Jesus is promising. Almost always he's promising to do something right now. And then he'll promise to do something soon. And he'll promise to do something in the distant future. Don't pit those sayings against each other and try and puzzle out which is the answer to that promise. The promise is secure, but are we only going to live in the promised land of the Old Testament by the river Euphrates? Is that the eternal state limited to that land on earth? The meek inherit what? That's the land promise of the Old Testament being expanded and developed. That promise has fulfillments. In the life of David and Solomon, is gonna, his son is going to expand that even more. But when we see promise and we see fulfillments, what we are to understand is that all of these things testify to Yahweh's wisdom, to his power, and to his goodness. Because whatever he promises, it is the smart promise. It is the best way forward. And he has the power to accomplish everything he promises to do. And he does it out of his truthful character and his merciful goodness towards us. Remember, we're the undeserving. Were it not for God's goodness, we would be among the giants. 
not among the descendants of David in worship. Even this brief report testifies to God's wisdom, his power, his goodness. And we as his people must remember that whatever he promises, he accomplishes. That he fulfills all of his promises. And that sometimes those fulfillments are dramatic and memorable and recorded. And when we come to the conclusion of, verse, of chapter 21, we should remember that God is with David at the end, just as he was with David in 1 Samuel 17. Remembering God's early promise to David in 2 Samuel 3, verse 18. This is how we close today. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 18. Now then, bring it about. For Yahweh has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. We are given the end at the beginning that size, strength, equipment, none of those things matter compared to God. Be assured, brothers and sisters, be assured that God always keeps his promises and will continue to do so until the day we see him face to face. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you are faithful, that you are good that you are the noteworthy one. And we ask, O oh Lord, that in meeting with us, you would help us to see your beauty, to gaze upon and wonder about your presence. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your faithfulness, even in this Sports Center highlights of David's life. Father, we thank you that it doesn't all rest on David. And if it doesn't all rest on David, it doesn't rest on us. That you are greater, that you are good, that you are trustworthy, and we ask, O oh Lord, that you would continue to empower us to boldly declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, because you, O oh Lord, are the true light. You, O oh Lord, are the one that all of history is about, and we delight in delighting in your presence, just as we sang earlier this morning. You are our one comfort in life and in death. Be glorified and worshiped today in Jesus' name. And all God's people agree.